0: Make sure to give my diet a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. Thank you for listening and enjoy the yourself. show. <laughs>
1: The Seven Mountain Mandate is the New Apostolic Reformation's mobilization strategy, okay? It's not a theology, because sometimes people talk in terms of uh, the theology of the Seven Mountains. It's not a theology. The theology is dominionism. The political theology is dominionism. The Seven Mountains Mandate is how you make dominion happen. (laughs) Essentially, how do you get Mm. to dominion? So those are the seven spheres, uh, religion, education, the family, uh, media, arts and entertainment, politics, and business. So you have seven spheres.
2: Um, <laughs> good. Uh, hello, Faithful Politics family. Welcome back. Um, and if you're watching us on our YouTube channel, we're glad to have you. Um, this week we have Andre Gagné.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Good job, a, Will. Yes. I'm really impressed.
2: <laughs> Who's a full professor in the Department of Theological Studies at Concordia? He has a conjoint PhD from the Le, Le Universite Le Université. de Louvain and the uh, Universite de Montreal. Um, his teaching and scholarship focus on political theology religious and political violence the Christian right neo-charismatic Pentecostalism evangelicalism and the interpretation and reception of the bible he's been featured and interviewed on in a whole bunch of media outlets to include the New York Times Washington post Al Jazeera and a whole bunch more and we are just thrilled to have him on our show today so welcome Harey
1: Thank you, yes. thank you for having me. A very kind of you to uh, to extend this invitation. I'm I'm very very happy. Yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah,
2: and and uh, and and I guess it. You know, happy belated Thanksgiving, um, to you.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is it the French
0: Thanksgiving? What am I missing? <laughs>
1: <laughs> in fact, uh, it was, uh, I think, last week, if my uh, memory serves me right. Yes, Canadian uh, or French? It's, can, it's Canadian. It's a Canadian. <laughs> I don't know if they have the equivalent. I'd have to see. Maybe in France. Or I, I'm not sure. Yeah. But I, it's different. Uh, you guys is a month later. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Canadians have a – it's the second Monday uh, yeah. of, of October. Yeah. So, nice. Um, and uh, I, I love – I love Canada, and especially I love Montreal specifically. Um, back back in my in the before times, at, when I was a consultant, I used to do a lot of work for Cirque du Soleil, um, who has. Oh, are
1: Montreal. you? Sh- oh my goodness! This is uh, you know Quebec uh, Montreal trademark thing. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it, um, and and I love just like the culture. And I, I've been down there a number of times, especially like around Canada Day. I've got friends mm-hmm. out there, so. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty neat. So anyways, um, we're not here to talk about Montreal or maybe we are, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, but I, I'm, cu- I'm curious, um, um, professor, if you can maybe just tell us like what, like what, what made you want to get into this field of study? Um, you're a professor in Canada and you're studying the religious right here in America. I mean, it, it seems, seems like an an odd match for some reason.
1: Yeah. You're, yeah. It's a question that is asked, uh, often, uh, you know, my my initial training is actually in biblical studies, so I, I actually specialize. That's my area. Um, my first area of, of specialization is biblical studies. So my my BA, MA, PhD were in biblical studies, doing exegesis, learning the ancient languages, and all of that. Uh, so I I've done a lot of that, and uh, you know, as as you're. You know, pursuing your career, uh, you do everything you have to do to <laughs> become a professor. Uh, you publish, uh, you lecture on your areas of of specialization, uh, but you also question yourself on what you're doing. Uh, you try to understand the relevance of what you're doing, um, and at one point. Uh, I kind of uh, was questioning myself in terms of okay, I know all of this about the Bible. I know how some Christians uh, read the Bible. Uh, I understand the the ancient reception of the of biblical text, but also the modern uh, reception of the of biblical texts. And I see that in our politics, uh, even sometimes here in Canada, less so, but in America especially, uh, there is a uh, love of the Bible there is a fam- familiarity with the Bible, so how yeah. can I use my initial training to speak to these things in terms of uh, you know biblical scholarship, how the Bible is received in some of these uh, communities and sometimes these communities that take political a political turn? Uh, I have a course for example uh, here that I teach at Concordia that 's called Bible and u s Politics where we look at how the Bible is used in the context of of politics in the U.S., sometimes we try to make some connections with what we encounter here in Canada. But as you know, Canada is extremely secular. Uh, The role of religion is not necessarily the same, or the place of religion is not necessarily the same. And that is even particularly more so in Quebec. That's even more secular that aligns itself, at least in its views as a society, closer to what you have in France, the mm-hmm. laïcité, uh, the French laïcité uh, that we see in France. So, so of course, uh, you know, especially <laughs> the colorful personage of Donald Trump coming on the scene in 2016, and you see uh, some evangelicals supporting Trump and using a uh, biblical language, biblical figures to kind of uh, characterize the figure of Trump. Uh, of course, I, I was I was often asked by the media, "What do you do with that? You know, what do you do with the, you know people using the Bible, use, talking about Trump? How can you know devout Christians support Trump? All of these questions came up to me in a sense, and that's where I use my my area of specialization and try to make it more relevant. In a sense, not just talking about ancient texts and their ancient context, but trying to understand this in uh, our contemporary world.
2: Yeah, you know, it, it's it's so interesting. Like, I, I'd imagine if you were a biblical scholar 10 years ago, you probably never would have thought you would have been called by the media.
1: <laughs> you know, like... Biblical scholars <laughs> learning ancient Greek and Hebrew <laughs> and working with with apocryphal texts like the Gospel of Thomas, learning Coptic stuff. Never. <laughs> it never would have crossed my mind. Uh-huh. But when you kind of try to, you know, look at your own career and, and try to to measure maybe the social dimension of your career or the, the kind of the social responsibility that you have as a scholar, uh, that's when I started realizing, okay, maybe there's something that I can connect my work with to hmm. contemporary uh, issues and and mm. that's how it it happened. I never in my life would have thought ten years ago yeah. that I would uh, be in the media. Somebody yeah. asking
0: you about Donald Trump. Did you ever have imagined that?
1: <laughs> you, see, you, see, you see that Donald <laughs> Trump person there? Uh, he got a lot of us, uh, you know, getting involved, and <laughs> he got a lot of books written. He got yes, he did. Lot yes, he did. Oh my goodness. Yes. He's a
2: job, he's a job creator.
1: I mean, oh, you know. <laughs> absolutely.
2: I you know,
0: absolutely! the greatest, the greatest job creator ever. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, yeah. so, so I guess within kind of that, that vein of, um, you know, Protestant Christian Christians in America, there, there's a small sliver that I I'm especially interested in. Um, and anybody I've ever asked said that you're the person to kind of help unpack, Some of the more, I don't know, like awkward things about the religious right. And and um, and just just to kind of set the stage for 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 those that are listening or watching that aren't really necessarily steeped in kind of all the, I don't know, controversy. There's a few terms that I love for you to maybe kind of unpack um, and for us to define um, as Mm -hmm. as I'm sure we're going to be using them quite a lot. So so the, the first term is NAR. Um, the, <laughs> yeah. the new uh, Apostolic Reformation, um, Dominionism, and and maybe fivefold ministry. Um, okay,
1: these are yeah, this is important, <laughs> and I'm happy that you're doing this, and we're trying to uh, do this as you probably saw. We've uh, I've paired with a veteran journalist uh, mm-hmm. by the name of Frederick Clarkson. Yep. And we've uh, written a couple of pieces that he entitled and he thought would be good for reporters mm-hmm. to kind of unpack this language because a lot mm-hmm. of people are reporting on this and sometimes it's a bit like uh, out there and they're yeah. not used to it. And of course they have deadlines, so they don't always have the the time to research this in, in depth. So the NAR, I, they, they, we often use that NAR, I it's the NAR, but it, yeah, it's Nar, <laughs> New yeah. Apostolic Reformation. Uh, it's essentially a movement. It's not a denomination. It's not an organization. It's it's more of a movement. Um, we often credit that movement as being having been spearheaded by a uh, a person by the name of C. Peter Wagner, who was a missiologist and church growth specialist that worked at Fuller Theological uh, Seminary for for 30 years. Uh, Before that, he had been a a missionary in Bolivia for for a couple of years, and then uh, was invited to uh, take over the chair of church growth um, from Donald McGarvin uh, at Fuller. And Wagner's uh, itinerary is interesting, because he, he was very much interested in church growth, McGarvin had had uh, encouraged him to look into uh, the churches that grow the most. And for him, these were the types of Pentecostal slash charismatic churches that were growing in uh, various countries and even some growing in the U.S. So, of course, he, he got interested in that. So he, he, he looked at how these churches operated. And he started noticing that, like in the 90s, he started noticing churches that emphasized ideas around apostles, uh, the apostolic, uh, churches that that labeled themselves as being apostolic churches that functioned with, uh, and we'll define this in, in a few minutes, with the five-fold ministry idea. Um so he 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 tried to wrap his mind around what these churches were, and uh he was he was struggling to kind of label them. At one point, he was talking about like maybe a new apostolic kind of organization or something. And, and eventually, he came up with that name, New Apostolic Reformation. So he, his idea is that God was restoring apostolic leadership in congregations, that the next move of God for him, and, and of course, it wasn't only for him, you had other uh, important players uh, around that time, people like uh, Apostle Prophet uh, Bill Hammond, that had been talking or laying out a kind of a history since the middle of the 20th century of the progressive restoration of what is called the fivefold ministry, which are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Um and we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. But essentially, he turned that coin. Uh, he, he he coined that term. He that coin. He he coined that term, "New Apostolic Reformation," uh, in the '90s, and and really in 1999, he wrote a book called "Church Quake: The New Apostolic Reformation," and and that book really triggered his idea that we are entering in a new era. Uh, in some interviews, he he talks about uh, for him it really started in 2001. But he was already reflecting on this idea. We often credit him as being the founder of this movement, even if he says he isn't, or he always denied not being the founder. But he actually coined the term. So and and he used it a lot. If you you know he was extremely pro- prolific as a writer, and if you look at uh, his subsequent. Uh, Uh, publications after this, it really, really focuses on this idea of new apostolic reformation that brings about this idea of apostolic governance in churches. Now, maybe we can go to the fivefold ministry right away and then talk about the dominionism aspect after, because it blends in with this idea of a new apostolic reformation. And you have the word apostolic there. So it Mm -hmm. focuses on apostolic uh, governance that apostles and prophets have a prominent place in the body of Christ and a p- prominent function in the body of Christ as being the ones that give, especially apostles, that give and steer uh, the, co- the, the community of believers ju- towards a, a, a vision given by God. So apostles have a primary role of leadership in in communities. They often are paired with prophets um, that that kind of work together. Prophets hear from God, and uh, they kind of share what they hear from God to apostles. And apostles set things in motion. Apostles are the ones that give the direction. So this, this idea of the fivefold ministry is an idea that comes from the book of Ephesians the letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, specifically verses uh, verse 11, that speaks about uh, Christ giving gifts to men, and it talks about these five-fold gifts, eh? apostles, prophets, um, evangelists, teachers, and pastors. Now, in churches, usually what you encountered um, are pastors. Eh? You have pastors, you have teachers, you might have evangelists also. But it was rare that people went around and called themselves or or, or or appropriated the title apostle or prophet for themselves. You see, it's very rare. Yeah. You would see this more in types of charismatic uh, churches or, or Pentecostal churches. The early Pentecostals at the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, some of them really um, believed in the fivefold ministry. Uh, they they believed that there were apostles and prophets and 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 you know even in in these end times they they thought they were in the end times and this was picked up over uh, again later on uh, by a group of of uh, Pentecostals that that eventually left the Pentecostal movement a, a group called the New Order of the Latter Reign in 1948 which is a, a a kind of restorationist movement that actually emerged. From Sask- Saskatchewan, Canada, in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, in Canada, and then that revival spread throughout the world. So a lot of this idea of uh the restoration of the these offices, uh, because again, you know, that they will be talking about not only spiritual gifts of apostles and prophets and, and so on, but they they also see these as offices. Um and and that have a certain authority, so the new apostolic reformation kind of brings back to that to the fore. it kind of reactivates this idea that that you know was 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 there at the beginning in in early Pentecostalism, but then kind of lost its way a bit and then picked up again through the new order of the latter reign and then eventually attaining what we call now the the third wave uh of the spirit in the in the 1980s and and of course popularized very much by 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 C Peter Wagner. So new apostolic reformation is about that. It's about apostolic governance. Now, the term dominionism is um it's it it's essentially I think the best definition that was given by the by by by, by people on Studying this uh, was Fred Clarkson and Chip Berlay. Uh, I think they—they, they, you know—they were exploring ways to kind of define this, uh, you know, political th- theological idea, where essentially dominionism is this theocratic idea. This is how they define it: the theocratic idea that Christians are called by God to uh, exercise dominion in the world by taking control of cultural uh, and social and political institutions. So that's Clarkson's and Berlin's definition. It it encompasses a lot of things, because you can speak of various types of dominionisms. Um, You can, you know, when we think about dominionism often, and when you see this, you know, commented by by people, uh, either on Twitter or online or whatever. Uh, they're going to often refer to uh, Christian Reconstructionism with R.J. Uh, Rizdouni eh? or John Rosas uh, Um So uh, that's one form of Dominionism. But there's other forms of Dominionism, and what happens in the New Apostolic Reformation is a kind of merge of two prominent streams of dominionism, when, which would be the reconstructionist perspective from Rajduni, but another one that, that originally had its roots in the new order of the latter reign in 1945, uh, 1948, but that expressed itself anew through a theology that is called Kingdom Now Theology that emerged in the 1980s among some Pentecostals, uh, charismatics. We think about, uh, for example, Bishop Earl Polk, um, for example, who very much popularized this idea of kingdom now. So the New Apostolic Reformation, when we're talking about being it a dominionist movement, would be that movement that, of course, seeks in some form uh, to... They will say influence because they don't want to. You know, when you hear some of these people, its, it's we're influencers. But in the end, it's—it's it's really uh, to take, in a sense, a certain control of cultural institutions and bring about social transformation. Uh, which people will say, "What's wrong with that? You know, <laughs> what's what's the problem with that?" Yeah. The problem could be that you know maybe their project is not. Um, Taking into account uh, liberal democracies and the pluralism that we live in, uh, either in America or Canada or other Mm. places, you see, it is not a pluralistic project per se. No. So I don't know if that answers some of your. uh, (laughs) Oh yeah, I mean that's
0: that's very in depth, and I love it. You know, I've been just recently really starting to look into the Nar New Apostolic Reformation and see Peter Wagner. I've heard about it before, but never really um, understood it. And I'm in a doctoral program right now, actually at AGTS, somebody who got Theological Seminary. And yeah, and I started to look at it and I'm like looking up like spirit, Pentecostal leadership, because I'm doing a paper on that. And then it's there. And I'm like, what is going on with this? And I'm looking at the seven mountain mandate. um, And maybe you can, I know that you kind of referenced some of that, but maybe you could describe the seven mountain yeah. mandate in the next question yeah. but here's so i want to read a statement that they came out with which are, you probably read i don't want to i don't want to put you in a weird spot but it's the one that's the nar and christian nationalism statement and um it comes to this place where they say in short oh wait, wait no we affirm that the spirit of the true apostles and prophets should exemplify the attitude and lifestyle of Jesus coming alongside of other church and workplace leaders to serve them, not replace them. In short, we deny any affiliation with what is presently characterized as NAR in many circles, both Christian and secular. We also believe that reports of an alleged conspiratorial worldwide dangerous NAR movement are highly exaggerated and misleading as for Christian nationalism we recognize that for some this simply refers to a healthy form of christian patriotism of loving god and loving one and loving one's country in the sense that term is benign so you have this reaction that they've yeah. come out against so my question you know what i understood is that they see themselves as Apostles at the same level of authority as, say, Paul or Peter or, um, or, uh, or or any of the other apostles, the you know, John or, uh, James or any of them. What, um, so what is going on exactly with <laughs> this nar? Like, like, wh- okay, so the seven mountain mandate, yeah. what is it? And what's like, and do they, are they really taking their apostolic authority to that level? Yeah. And what do you make of that statement? Yeah. I know that's yeah. kind of three
1: in one, but they're all yeah. related. <laughs> but that's great. Thank you, Josh. Yeah. In fact, if uh, your uh, listeners are interested, Fred Clarkson and I responded to this. To this thing. Nice. In religion. Yes, in religion dispatches. I'm to,
0: interested. <laughs> yeah, you can
1: check it out. Um, and, and I could send you the link if you're interested after. Uh, yes. We actually responded to this. Uh, there's the, of, of course, the old. Uh, in, in this statement, it's the old usual den, dominionism denial. Uh, they're they're always denying you that. They've always mm. been denying you that. But when you go to their websites and you go and you read their their their, their documentation, you know it's it's a complete contradictory uh, statement that they're making. You you mm. can just go and surf, and we've we've uncovered this in in our response. We put links to the stuff that they say uh that corresponds <laughs> to NAR ideas. And they say, no, no, we're that's not what we are. You see? So it's the usual denial that has been along, uh, you know, we had this type of denial a few years back with uh in another political situation with at the time of Rick Perry. Uh oh no no we're not that uh C. Peter Wagner at one point had to go on NPR and explain that NAR was not a cult and and so on. So they've been in this <laughs> PR kind of damage control environment for a long time. Even one of the signatories at one point uh, denied even the existence of the NAR uh, from a piece that we had um, we had written in August. Wow! And then we we asked him question if he was still part of this. You know NAR network, and he said, "Yes, I'm still part of it." So you're not denying <laughs> that it is it's still in existence. So th- they're not denying anymore. They're more careful. They used to actually deny the very existence of the New Apostolic Reformation. Huh. Now they're not that. We're we're not what it is characterized as. That they're kind of more careful now. You're absolutely right. The issue of the apostles, um, they're going to say. Often and even in one of the previous statements, they 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 launched another statement in April uh, 2021 called the prophetic standards. You know, you remember when they had the uh, the failed prophecies around Trump's re-election? So there were a lot of so-called yes. <laughs> prophets and people that had predicted that Trump uh, uh, would would in a sense. Uh, uh, be reelected, and it didn't happen. So yes. they have to issue a statement on regulating prophecy. And they had to kind of explain, you know, what prophets are, and they're not like Old Testament prophets, and so on. They're doing the same with the apostles. Now, they're, it's true up to a certain extent that they would not dare equating themselves to the Twelve. You see, because the twelve right. were really chosen by Jesus and so on, but nonetheless, they still quote verses like Ephesians two twenty, and uh, you know Ephesians four eleven. Ephesians two twenty it says that the church of God is uh, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, and they don't say that these are these apostles and prophets are necessarily the twelve. <laughs> you see, it's still applicable for them as as prophets. Right. So so despite saying they're not equal sometimes it's 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 not very clear <laughs> if they, they 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 don't share this kind of uh uh equality with the with the with the apostles but let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they would not see themselves as equal nonetheless they still ex- exercise a- an important amount of authority they often quote uh, passages, for example, in First uh, Corinthians chapter twelve, verse twenty-eight, that says that God in the church has first established apostles, then a prophets, then those that heal, and so on. Uh, so, and and I remember Wagner. It was very clear Wagner was saying apostles are first. So, so there's a need for for apostolic governance. In their system, this is why they talk about, for example, um, uh, apostolic centers. Like, the language, you see, the language of the NAR, it's a grammar in and of itself that you have to learn. Like, you have to read their books. You have to listen to their their sermons, their, you know, the, the stuff that they do online. Because it becomes difficult for, you know, the ordinary Christian to figure out what they're talking about. You see, when, when they're talking about apostolic centers, for example, are apostolic centers churches? Because you have some, in the, some, some, some NAR teachers that will say that God has been doing something different now, that now we're talking about, we're not talking about churches per se anymore, we're talking about apostolic centers, because God functions now, it's a new season, and he uses a new wineskin. So God uses new wineskins to bring about his purposes. And these centers are now the manifestation of this new way of doing things, that God is doing something different. They're always talking about apostolic networks. So if apostles, the apostolic is not that you know important and they're just normal servants, why always focus on apostles? Now, the idea of the seven mountains mandate, this is important because it's tied to The seven mountain mandate is the new apostolic reformations mobilization strategy. Okay. It's not a theology because sometimes people talk in terms of uh, the theology of the seven mountains. It's not a theology. The theology is dominionism. The political theology is dominionism. The seven mountains mandate is how you make dominion happen. (laughs) Essentially, how do you get Mm. to dominion? So those are the seven spheres uh religion education the family uh, media arts and entertainment politics and business so you have seven spheres now the nar did not invent those spheres uh these spheres existed it, it's actually credited to just to give you a bit of information background, it's actually credited to two individuals in nineteen seventy five Lauren Cunningham and Bill bright that got together at one point and uh they 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 kind of said that both independently of each other uh God revealed to them somehow a strategy to uh help the church change society
0: and Bill and bright was campus crusade for Christ absolutely. Lauren Cunningham
1: was used with emotion. That's it. YWAM. YWAM. Okay. Exactly. Just to make, yeah, those yeah, organizations. Thank you for that. It's, it's yep. good, Josh. Thank you. <laughs> so, so, yes. So both of them separately had this kind of view of how to, you know, affect uh, culture. At the time, they talked about mind molders. They said that these areas were what shaped culture. And if you can penetrate those mind molders, you can transform culture. Eventually, someone by the name of Lance Wallnow, who is this kind of businessman, entrepreneur, um, some uh, for, for some he is understood to be a prophet. Uh, he wrote a book on Trump, uh, God's Chaos Candidate in 2016, and so on. Uh, he came out, he, he used those, those spheres or those mind molders, and he came out with the idea of mountains, seven mountains. The goal of Christians would be to, he says, influence, but it's actually penetrate those mountains, those cultures, to attain the top of those cultures, uh, the the you know, the, the the summit of those cultures in order to transform those cultures. Uh, but you need to get to the top of those cultures. So if we have Christians in leadership positions at the top of these you know, these mountains, we will be able to transform the culture. Now, the problem is, uh, for him, at least how he understood that, is that these this, these seven spheres or these seven mountains are under demonic influence. And we need to engage, for him, at least is in his understanding, uh, Christians need to engage in spiritual warfare to be able to conquer each of these uh, summits in order to implement kingdom thinking you see so this is how you bring about dominion in a sense this is how you bring about the kingdom of god by penetrating culture and changing culture uh, through your of course he's going to talk about influence but uh, that's understood that could be understood on a, on a scale depending on who you're talking to um, because there's people that are very scared with with this language of dominionism. I remember, yeah. uh, just as an aside, a conversation that Walnow had with uh, two other individuals. I think it was uh, in um, 2007, 2008. Uh, there was this guy by the name of Oss Hillman. Uh, Lance Walnow was there, and this other individual by the name of Johnny Enlow, and they were talking about the Dominionism thing, the Seven Mountain Mandate thing. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith in public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight.
1: And Hillman, um, he's he's interested in you know changing culture, uh, especially in terms of the business world. So. He was asking a question to Walnow and and Inlo at the time, and he's saying, "You know, we're talking about dominionism, taking over. You know, the, this language of taking over, and that scares a lot of people. Is that the right way of talking about it? You know." And Walnow at the time, it's interesting. You can find the video actually on YouTube very easily. Walnow says, "He says, you know, when we talk about, you know, taking over." Uh, you know, a city or taking over culture or dominion. He says this is language for internal consumption. This is for people that are insiders. When I'm t-, and he says when I'm talking with the media or other people, I'm not going to use that language. It's going to scare people off. You have to adjust your, you know, your 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 rhetoric to your audience. And Enloe was beside him. And Enlo, by the way. Since that time, he wrote like three books on the Seven Mountains Mandate, <laughs> like, like three books just on that, you know. Uh, but law was saying maybe we shouldn't use the term Dominionism, you know. Maybe we should we should avo- avoid this term. But they haven't been avoiding, or they're trying to minimize it by saying, you know, Jesus was the first Dominionist because he said, go, you know, all power was given to me on in heaven and on earth, and he's the first Dominionist, and he's calling us to preach the gospel. But it's interesting how they use the, what that means. You see, Jesus, in his commission mandate in, in Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples of, you know, the individuals, of, you know, of people and, and have them, be, you know, been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're going to focus so much on discipling nations. You see, their idea is not making disciples— it's discipling nations. It's aligning nations to the idea of the kingdom of God because, of course, they have this entire idea of sheep nations and goat nations and sheep nations are those that are aligned with God's kingdom and, and, and goat nations are those that either persecute Christians or Israel and, and so on or reject uh, you know, God's kingdom. So that's the type of language that they use. And then they're gonna say, no, the Dominionism we don't understand. In, in, in that statement that you read elsewhere, they're gonna say, we don't even know people that talk about Dominionism. So it's 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 disingenuous to 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 say that. It's just they're they're I think like I, I we talked, Fred and I, they're in panic mode. And they have to kind of make sure that you know they have to have a statement somewhere. You know, the two people that wrote this statement was uh, uh, Michael Brown and uh, Joseph Matera, who is the convening apostle of the U.S. Coalition of Apostolic Leaders, which is a movement that's under the International Coalition of Apostolic Leaders. And the International Coalition of Apostolic Leaders is led by John P. Kelly, who is also an apostle. So come on, like... uh,
2: yeah, you, you know, I'm I'm curious. So, so I think one of the one of the things I love the most about our podcast is you know. So I'm I'm the the liberal progressive, and Josh is the conservative Republican pastor, right? And and with that, we have a pretty wide spectrum of listeners, viewers, what what have you. Um, and I, and I'm curious, like when I first came across or I first heard about you know, the new apostolic reformation, seven mountain mandates, I just kind of just shrugged my shoulders. I'm like, who cares? You know, like, um, and, I, and I'm i sure there's a lot of people not within sort of the faith community that are just like, yeah, that's just those crazy Christians, you know, like, and when Michael Flynn is up there talking about mm-hmm. whatever armor of God or whatever, that like, that's just, that's just Christianese, and it doesn't really matter to me. So, so I'm, I'm curious on, like, why should non Christians, non-believers care about you know this this movement or this change uh, that that we're seeing?
1: It's important because, for example, when you take the uh, presidency of Trump, for them, Trump was this new Cyrus right? that God had chosen. And some of them, uh, I'm thinking about Rob McCoy, who's a pastor in California, says, you know, Trump is the perfect example of someone that knows how to navigate the Seven Mountains mandate. You know, he's (laughs) successful in business. He he masters Twitter. Not anymore. Uh, (laughs) But he's, you know, he's in a position politically to actually bring about things in society that will help us with our message. And we saw we, we are now experiencing the legacy of Trump. You see the, the three conservative judges that were placed on the Supreme Court justices, yeah. uh, the 300 federal judges that he, uh, that he appointed uh, during his mandate. The uh, transfer of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, that was ecstatic for a lot of people that have a you know a particular view of the end times and Israel's role. So it plays at the uh, geopolitical level. It plays in terms of democracy. Uh, it plays in terms of pluralism. So yes, people should be concerned. And, and you're right, Will, in saying, you know, a lot of people, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes even it could happen in media outlets that labeled them as crazy people. And, but we have to be careful. You're you're when when people are labeling them as crazy or nutcases or you know these are not we're we're kind of minimizing the threat in a sense that this could have on uh, on on democracy up to a certain extent uh, because you know when Trump was there he had his evangelicals for Trump uh, council he had Paula White Kane uh, he he was listening to Paula White Kane. And uh, you remember during, uh, uh, you know, many times what, what this does. Uh, Paula White Cane opening prayer meetings, like not prayer meetings, opening campaign rallies in prayers uh, and doing spiritual warfare prayer, um, demonizing political adversaries, uh, asking God to protect Trump and his family against uh, the deep state uh, you know affairs. And these are demonic networks that are trying to work against... You're demonizing political adversaries. You're contributing to an already extremely polarized um, political atmosphere in in America that will fuel eventually violence. We've seen it with January 6th. A lot of the people that are supposedly not NAR (laughs) were were there. You know, they they were a, a... Embracing the big lie and the push that that you know this this should not go through that Biden should not be president, so it's a threat to democracy in a sense to the, the to the proper functioning of uh, elections, and you have of course with with this mix now you're seeing these rallies these political I would call them political slash religious types of rallies a reawakening the religious because there's up to a certain extent. Uh, the reawakening, yes, the mm-hmm. reawakening tour. Uh, they're religious up to extent, to a certain extent, because you have these re- these religious characters with this religious rhetoric going on. But it's a melting pot of everything. Uh, you have you have Flynn, you have QAnon stuff, you have them, uh, you have spiritual warfare, um, and and they're galvanizing individuals, and these people will go vote. Okay, and that's going to have an impact on the future of America. And this is why people have to take this extremely seriously. And I'm happy to see that mainstream media is more and more taking these people seriously. A few years back, you couldn't talk about the Christian right, not in the way that we're talking about it now. There was a lot of denialism related to uh, even the political... uh, you know, the political impact that the Christian right might have. At one point, even people thought that the Christian right was dead. Huh? So, no, it's not dead. It's it's really well <laughs> well alive today. So I think it's, looking at all of this, people should pay attention.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking not only is it concerning for those who are not Christian, but I think it should be especially concerning for those who are. Um, and especially for those who like myself are, would consider themselves uh pentecostal or charismatic in theology because essentially now um I even heard we we did a we've uh, one of on one of our shows we have um uh anthea butler dr yes. anthea Butler yeah and she actually mentioned you and how you guys had um were colleagues at some level and yeah and she um but she said uh Pentecostal is like NAR and Pentecostal are essentially becoming like the same thing in the mind yeah. of so many people.
1: Yeah. In the mind of a lot of people. Yes.
0: And, and I'm, and, and that's very, very concerning for me. And I'm very concerned. Um, and my wife was very concerned. One thing we were, I was talking with her about it. And yeah. as we were kind of wrestling with this back and forth, because like Bethel, um they would be a major church what are some other major major churches that we would know like that have made mention would hillsong be a part of that hillsong
1: no? is a bit of a, a bit of a different network and you know that hillsong is really pentecostal yeah, you know this, yeah 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 but it's really kind of a different stream i would say uh i would not necessarily enter them there um some would see gateway probably uh, as that those types of churches we have to look at independent types of churches right things like the church on the rock or the rock church i i, I can't i can't remember i never remember is it the church on the rock or che an in uh, yes yes uh, in in california things like that and they like they uh they work a lot also with networks the, the thing with the nar it's It's essentially an ecclesiology. eh? When you think about it, it's an ecclesiology. It's a way of understanding church governance with the emphasis of uh, uh, apostolic leadership. That just penetrates its ideas that permeate congregations, and congregations sometimes don't even know where this comes from. Oh, absolutely. And and you're going to say, hey, this is NAR. What is this? Like they don't know what you're talking about because it just has blended itself in yes, the general culture well, absolutely. of a lot of Pentecostal slash charismatic churches. And
0: I, and I've been a part of them and I've seen it and I've seen it in friends. I've heard pastors tell me, yeah. well, you know that, you know that Hillary Clinton is demon possessed, right? That's what like yeah. they, I've had a pastor yeah. literally say that yeah. to me of uh, a yeah. larger church, you know, like as in, like this is common knowledge that she's demon possessed. And um I'm I, I I sometimes I don't even know where to where to start with some of these things. Um and so I guess when when my wife and I were talking about it, we were we were talking about the hermeneutics behind it. Yes. Like how are they even getting here? Um could you walk us through some of that and then maybe help us understand, like, okay, so Some people believe in fivefold ministry, but they're not in this. They are. That's it. That's
1: it. That's it. Um,
0: So what's what's like what's the? I'm even personally wrestling with fivefold ministry. What it means is it something that's even like legitimate? Um, And I'm wrestling myself with it. um, But I would love your insight into that. Like, how are they getting here, um, exegetically and hermeneutically? And how are they? and um yeah and and what and and help us understand where they're going wrong
1: yeah with it the thing is this is a great question josh it's a complex one because you know they're, they're readers of the bible and uh, as a reader of the bible we all engage uh, we're all uh, engaged in hermeneutics uh, we we you know the the bible doesn't speak on its own <laughs> we're, we're we're situated individuals uh, with our own experiences, uh, and and that colors our reading. It it affects the way we we understand things. So we know that in in Pentecostal circles, for example, uh, the hermeneutic is often very subjective. In terms of Pentecostals, sometimes see themselves in the narratives that they read. You see, they kind of they they understand that the. You know, stories of liberation, they appropriate that for themselves. You see, that the, the, the thing about Pentecostalism, the beautiful thing, is this restoration element eh, of, of liberation. And and uh, this is where we as scholars and you as a pastor and others that are have to address that, is that we need to really be specific when we're talking about certain things. When we're talking about the, the NAR, we have to be specific in defining exactly what that means for these people, but then differentiate what we mean by Pentecostalism. What is a Pentecostal? What's the emphasis? And go back to our, you know, the Pentecostals' uh historic roots and 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 understand and self-understanding of that. And how, you know, in some in some cases, the assemblies of God uh, they they react. When there was the new order of Latter Rain stuff in 1948, they reacted to that. The Assemblies of God did not agree with that, and that created problems for the new order. Which you know, the people that were part of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, which were kind of paired with the AG, uh, with the uh, Assemblies of God uh, in America, they 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 left the movement. You see, so there was a clear stance on the part of denominations, which the NAR doesn't like. <laughs> yeah, but the NAR doesn't like right. denominations. It's 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 a post denominational movement at the same mm. time. So the accountability element is not as prevalent. There, there's going to be a kind of accountability to apostles, but it's it's more they they kind of want to see their 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 networks as relational more than anything else. So I think it's coming back to what is Pentecostalism, the essence of what it is what, is, what it's meant, how Pentecostals read the Bible. At the same time, you know, it's what you do with this. It, it, like, like the NAR, what they do is they read the Book of Acts, for example, okay? And they're going to read, uh, like in the Book of Acts, there, were, there was a major church, let's say, in Antioch. And then there was another major church that de- developed, maybe in Corinth, and another major church in Rome. And they're going to they're going to kind of inject their view of what they call apostolic centers into their hermeneutic. Into they're going to they're going to they're going to say, you see, these were actually apostolic centers, but the Bible doesn't say that. You see, the Bible just talks about a church. There were right. apostles and prophets there, so it's coming back to sticking really with Scripture, what it says they kind of already have a marketing scheme in their minds, like the seven mountain mandate and all of that. It's already there. They placate their, those ideas to, to the Bible. That's essentially what they do in a first, in a first instance. But you don't find seven mountain mandate no, in the Bible. You no, like, you're, you're going to have seven mountains as a symbolic thing in the book of Revelation. You know, like the beast is sit, is sitting on the seven hills. Okay, you're going to have that, but it's not like it's not going to explain to you that these hills are education are
0: religion education <laughs> business.
1: You see? It's not there. Yes. Uh, so so but but that's it. So their the, the, the hermeneutic is very fanciful. It's it's um if you read Johnny Enlow's books on on the seven mountains, he's going to say he's going he's going to read the book of Joshua. He's going to start from the book of Joshua, okay? this conquering mentality is going to start from the book of Joshua and he's going to look at the enemies, the the, the enemies of the Israelites in the land that they had to conquer. You know, there was like six or seven nations and he's going to, he's going to parallel these nations to mountains. You see, so he's injecting himself in the text or his view in the text. This is not like expository, what you would no. understand as being no. expository uh, preaching or teaching. A lot of these people don't no. know the ancient languages. You know, they, they so they, they, that's it. It's very fanciful. And it's often based on revelations that they have, you know, they, they've read scripture and they felt that God was moving them there and showing them that this corresponds to this event. They do a lot of news exegesis. <laughs> you know, the exegesis of the news, uh, you know, something happens in 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 politics in America, and then they're going to find a verse somewhere to kind right. of connect that with something. Like, how do you come up with Trump as being the new Cyrus? Like, you know, like like just that. Walls, yeah. Lance Wall now, his entire theory that Trump is this new Cyrus figure is that one day he felt the Holy Spirit telling him, go to Isaiah 45. Uh, go to the book of Isaiah 45. That he goes to the book of Isaiah 45, and you can read it in this book, he tells you. And then he starts reading, and Cyrus, my chosen one, he will break, you know, break the doors and, and free the captives and all of that. And then he clicked, he had a revelation. Isaiah 45, the 45th president of the United States. Trump signed You see, so like, come on, no, nobody is, is, is going to read Isaiah forty-five. Is going to see Trump there. You see, so it's really kind of this fanciful exegesis that is not controlled by any kind of mechanism mechanisms that we use when we read the Bible. We use historical, we use histo- you know historical drama, grammatical. The tools that help us understand the context in which a text was written, and it always it doesn't always apply directly to us. We can we can gain ideas or insights from biblical texts, yes. But sometimes sure. you need to understand the context of a text. You can't just jump directly without understanding what this context is, is about. So it's that it's that kind of fanciful, uncontrolled, hermeneutic. That, that kind of goes all over the place, and it's really based on impressions of the, what they deem to be impressions of the spirit. Um, but but yeah, they have an idea set, and it's often patterned from other ideas. You see, they're not necessarily original, uh, like w- what we said about the, four, right. uh, the fivefold ministry and all of that. Uh, the early Pentecostals, they, they had that, but they kind of overemphasized that. They pick up where you know there were exaggerations on that, like New or- Order of the Latter Rain, for example. You know the overemphasis on the authority of that fivefold ministry instead of just understanding that these 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 ministries as gifts as any other spiritual gift. Um, Wagner liked to kind of differ- differentiate between uh, uh, situational gifts. And, and more uh, temporary gifts, like there were spiritual gifts, because he's not a Pentecostal. Eh? He's, he's an evangelical uh, that became a neo-charismatic. So situational gifts versus more, uh, uh, I would say, uh, permanent gifts like the offices that we, we've talked about. Whereas prophecy or healing or other things would be more situational in terms of how they operate. But you see, these are distinctions that he makes. The the Bible doesn't really tell you that. (laughs) Do do, do you understand? So it's a combination of marketing, of spiritual impressions, of a bit fanciful, you know, exegesis. I don't even know. if I I, I think it's more eisegesis than exegesis. Um, Yes. So, yeah. I don't know if it answers, Josh, but I think. Very good. I mean, I appreciate it. it. Pentecostals is to set the bar, to be very clear what Pentecostalism is.
2: Yeah. I'm I'm curious if there's any, or, or, or what your thoughts are of like Christian nationalism, because you know, that that, that's a term that, that I hear a lot. Um, and, and I, and I'd be curious to see, to hear your thoughts, if there's a tie in to NAR and, and I'll, 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 I'll give, I'll give you two examples. Um, or maybe three examples um, that that have come up recently that sort of got my attention was, you know, so they, so there's a movement in the United States um, called the national conservatism movement. And they came out with a statement um, um, basically saying, you know, where Christian majority exists, public life should be rooted in Christianity and its moral vision, which should be honored by the state and other institutions, both public and private. And then there's another organization um, an offshoot kind of from Trump, um Stephen Miller kind of runs it called America First Legal Group and they issued a statement this is shortly after the the Kennedy v. Bremerton decision um about the the, the coach who who you know prayed on the 50 yard line or what have you they, yeah. they they issued a statement calling for a total overhaul of the establishment clause in the United States <laughs> where 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 they 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 basically is like you know who needs it whatever you know <laughs> and 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 only just a few weeks ago the um the family Research Council held a mm-hmm. um, like a, a seminar or some sort of yeah. you know um, yeah. and and they were discussing christian nationalism and basically, you know the the big takeaway was like, man, no big deal, you know so so I'm curious if if the christian nationalists uh, in this country, if there's a tie-in with Nar or is it just, are they one of the same? And what I just mentioned is just sort of the, the activist part of the NAR philosophy.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, what Josh read at their statement is NAR and Christian nationalism. So they see the kind of, uh, it, it kind of goes a bit together, but essentially a Christian nationalism is this idea that, you know, America is a Christian nation uh, from its founding. Uh, and, and uh it, of course, it focuses more on the Puritan narrative when they arrived in uh you know Massachusetts and that, that it's like the hit all the history <laughs> is just focused on that aspect, forgetting that there were other colonies where there was more pluralism and and so on so Christian nationalism is about that, so anything that really pushes an agenda where christianity is not to be regarded as any other religion, but should be the primary religion, that's Christian nationalism. And of course, for NAR, of course, for NAR, that fits. Because they don't see the other religions as equal uh, to Christianity. Like, Christianity is the exclusivistic message, and the other religions, you know, they're false religions. Like, it's very clear, see Peter Wagner, for him, uh, you know, the, uh, these other religions are are false these are this is untrue it's you, you shouldn't follow that <laughs> So it's not from the start a pluralistic view of society huh? and and it's considering uh, Christianity superior to anything else and it's you know the 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 social and political institutions of the country should be controlled uh, or should be profoundly marked. By Christian ideas, so NAR, yes, and 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 this, in a sense, uh, is why they made that statement and put it together. It's interesting that statement. Eh? They, 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 you know, a Christian. Uh, you could be a Christian. You could be a patriot. We, we we're not against like. Uh, we're we're more against like extreme Christian patriotism. Uh, patriotism to be. We could be an extreme Christian patriot, but uh, <laughs> you know. What about like a Muslim patriot, or what about a Buddhist patriot, or uh, I don't know, you know, like an atheist patriot? Like, why a Christian patriot? Like, do you understand what I'm saying? So well, absolutely. it's really putting that overemphasis and this the supremacy of Christianity over all things.
0: That's that, it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I um, I remember. Uh, I was, I've been reading about it and I know that the, uh, I heard the, um, woman who, I don't know if it was actually later or not, but they had the camp that was, the film Jesus Camp was based off
1: of. Yes.
0: Um, and, uh, I was thinking, like, if, like, how would we feel or how would, you know, uh, the American populace feel at large if there was a Muslim camp? that was training muslim youth and they were dressed in military garb and they were you know using um military language whether or not they meant it whether or not it was literal or not um we would not be okay with it no we would um,
1: freak out <laughs> yeah we would freak out
0: any well any like you said any, any. religion beyond that's it. that's it anything beyond christianity yeah, yeah. and you know i this is the last question. Then we have a quick follow up. Um, <laughs> this is—I have so many questions, but we're trying to well, keep we, it within we gonna... us.
1: We should do this another time, also. Uh, yes, we, we don't have to do an M- episode. We could just meet on Zoom if you guys.
0: I want. would love to do that and just talk <laughs> with you. That would be amazing. But what? So he, let, let's let's let me uh, let me have you do something that. Uh, professors don't like to do, especially <laughs> historians. Yeah, predict the future. Um, what yeah. do you think in two thousand twenty-four? With all of this stuff going around, what what would be your statement to Christians? To Christians who are lot, many on the right, what is your statement to Christians moving into this twenty twenty-four election? I mean I know 2022 the midterms that's fine but I but even more right it's always bigger with the twin, with the presidential mm. so what is your what maybe what are your fears mm. what are your concerns and what do you want the church in America
1: mm. what message do you want them to hear so my fears and concerns of course uh, there's been even during the Trump uh, 2020 election people were talking about civil war uh, you never know you see, you had the January 6th. What's going to happen in the midterms is going to be kind of, it's going to give us a feel of maybe what could happen in, in 2024. Um, this will not go away. That, that, that My fear is that it's, it's going to amplify itself. It's not going to go away. People have latched, uh, latched on to something that for them gives them meaning. We have to say something about the right. They do have a narrative. You see that sometimes the left doesn't have. <laughs> you see, and and the right has always been very structured. Has its networks, uh, you know, has has the money. So so this is not going to end, even if Trump doesn't is not the chosen one. <laughs> Uh You have other people, you see people, sometimes people are talking about DeSantis, but you have even, you have Doug Mastriano there in Pennsylvania. We don't know if he's going to win the governor's seat, but he started something. Mastriano started something and he's actually a better fit for people like NAR than Trump was ever. Because he's He's a a Christian and he's like, he has the language, he understands this, he blows shofars, he does all of this, you see? So he's a better fit for them. So he might, I wouldn't be surprised, I would be the least surprised if this person, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I wouldn't be surprised if this person would not be a Republican presidential candidate. I would not be surprised. That's one thing. These are my fears. It's not going away. It's going to amplify. For the church, I think the church really needs to take this moment extremely seriously. It needs to get informed about what this is and, and, and just think, not think, oh, these are just crazy people and they won't show up to vote. No, you have to go vote. And the church needs to really think about the beauty of America as an experiment of pluralism, Mm. and freedom mm. and democracy and if you don't want to lose that or see this eroded i think it's important to really weigh the choices that you have to make as as individuals and really look at the bigger picture it's not about being you know republican or not it's it's not that look at what you want your country to be Look at how you can make this polarization up to a certain extent less than it is now, if it's possible. Uh, is it possible to talk with these people? I don't, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe we're past that. But I think things will be, uh, will be uh, really, really important in terms of the voting ballot. People have to go vote if they want to make sure and if they want to um, guarantee that their beautiful country remains what it is or or gets back to what it was in its uh, in its beauty years that's what Well
0: I if it all goes crazy i'm moving to canada <laughs> and i'm going to use you as a reference
1: <laughs> i know i know a lot of I- people I know. know, During the Trump uh, years, I had people telling me, like, you know, if I would move to Canada, could you sign something for me? (laughs) Yeah, I know. No people
0: really freaking out. I believe it. I I I have another pastor friend in Toronto who's uh, who's in Canada, Canadian (laughs) too. So that'd be so, man, uh, Professor um, Gagnier, Andre. It was so nice to have you on. The show question, how can people follow you? What's your next project? How can people keep up with what you're doing?
1: Okay, so they can follow me on Twitter. Um, That's very easy. So if you guys post this on Twitter and you can tag me, they'll be able to follow me. Uh, I have uh, on my Twitter bio, you you can find a link to my faculty page. So if people want to write to me, uh, you'll find all my coordinates there. You'll find the books that I wrote. Uh, you'll find the even the opeds that I recently write. Uh, people can consult my work. I also have a YouTube channel where I have videos that talk about the NAR and apostolic centers and all of that stuff. And uh, of course, my next project. Now I'm in the process of uh, completing a translation of my book. I, I, I wrote a book in 2020 uh, called "Ces Évangéliques derrière Trump" (Evangelical Supporters of Trump). I wrote it in French because it was a um, it was a request by a European publisher who are really trying to wrap their minds around what's happening in America. You know, they, they it's hard for them to kind of, you know, what's, what's what's going on in the US with Trump and evangelicals. Um so I wrote that book in French, which was really an eye opener for for a lot of Europeans. It, it you know, it it was a it, it was a good success. But I had a colleague um in she she's actually teaching it's it's interesting. I think she was in the, in the sciences. At uh, Buffalo University, State University, who reads French and read my book and said, "You know, you have to have that book translated." So Linda Shanahan uh, contacted me and she said, "I'll translate your book for free." Wow! Wow, my goodness! Because I don't, I didn't have time to do that and everything. So she, she worked, you know, really hard, and uh, we managed to get a a contract signed with Routledge. Uh, hopefully we'll try to get this out in 2023. So that's the first, uh, that's the first thing I have to finish. I also would like to, I, I have two, uh, two or three other projects, but two in particular, maybe writing a book for people that don't know about these groups in the Christian right. Like what is Christian reconstructionism? For example, what is NAR? Like, a uh, a, a, like a, a summary chapter on each of these types of groups, so that for for people that want to have a quick access to this stuff, you know, where does that come from? What is that? A kind That'd of be excellent you know, that would be useful. And the last thing is, I'm I'm very much interested in uh, uh, charismatic Pentecostal Christianity, and I would really like to write a history of that. Uh, maybe starting with the Holiness movement or something. I can't go too far back because you know, it, it could be far, but maybe with the Holiness movement and then look at you know the development in in, in the, the 20th century and where we are today and maybe some of the you know, political implications for for some of these groups and so on. So that's that's my these are my projects. For that's awesome. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. This has been a great conversation. And, guys, we're looking forward to getting your feedback. And please listen and watch wherever you're getting your podcasts and podcasts. And, uh, yeah, thanks.